I'm just curious, given AI is on machine learning, it cuts across so many different areas of drug discovery, development, diagnostics, management, clinical decision-making. But equally, when I look back and I think of things like combinatorial chemistry, bioinformatics, in silico drug design, which cuts across a lot of programs and, and were platforms, were these sort of discussions had then when those companies were coming through with those platforms for the first time? Well, I mean, I, I've been involved in, um, in many hype mm. cycles. <laughs> uh, you know, originally it was uh, drugs by computers, computer-aided drug discovery, then it was HTS, and then it was bioinformatics, and, you know, and so it goes on. Uh, my sense is that there is actually profound um, change in, in the wind here. Uh, some of it feels very, very mundane. I mean, some of it is, you know, if you go all the way out to healthcare, some of it is just scheduling appointments better, frankly. Um, it's boring, uh, but it, it saves a ton of money. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's one of the biggest differences that you, you can make. No, I, I mean, I think the, there are genuine, um, there is a genuine transformation going to be made. And I, I actually, I think a lot of it, I mean, I'm, I'm biased in this, but I think a lot of it comes down to our conception of disease and the specificity with which you can link a subgroup of patients to a mechanism, to a drug, and find them again using a biomarker. That is That was the original premise. I mean, Jim Watson was on one of my scientific advisory boards back in the early 90s when he was planning this. And that was the original conception of the Human Genome Project. It hasn't yet been achieved outside of oncology and rare disease. I think now we're getting into a position where we can, we can achieve that and we, can, we do have all of the tools with scalability and innovation at every level through from the start of a project all the way through all of the different technology layers we've been talking about to make that happen. Is it going to happen overnight? No. Uh, absolutely not. I mean, you know, just clinical practice alone will take five to 10 years to even begin to transform um, clinical practice. But at the front end of the process, you know, you see the kind of investments that these guys are making in, in, uh, in AI. They're not doing that because, it, because it's hype. They're doing that because they're seeing benefits coming out of it. I mean, just to add, I, I guess we just got to be realistic when we make statements about the timescale for hoping for the achievements we're hoping to attain. Otherwise, you know, I've heard it said, you know, there was an AI winter, or, you know, this all goes back to the 50s. There was a lot of investment, it went nowhere. Then you had an AI winter probably from the 70s and it all came back again in more than the 90s. And I have heard people speculate that the next AI winter is if you overhype this or the time scales. Mm. But I, I agree with Steve. I mean, if you just look at the achievement of the alpha fold protein structure predicting model, I mean, that, that is potentially a game changer. And I think, um, if we think about possible diagnostic tools or clinical decision support tools, um, there's already one for diabetic retinopathy. Mm -hmm. And it just allows, it gives the power to actually get patients a diagnosis or a clinical decision anywhere in the world that's got a, a network connection because that you're not relying on genetic testing lab or anything like that. So it could be revolutionary, not just for your traditional uh, countries with medicine, but the wider, the wider world, hopefully. If, if I can pick up on that, I mean, you know, we're, 
yeah, again, a bit self-serving, I apologize, but we, we're working on risk models that allow you to predict the disease trajectory that individual patients will go down. And, you know, type 2 diabetes complications, it's where 80% of the money spent on diabetes is spent, renal failure or retinopathy or cardiovascular. If you can intervene in that prodomal phase between first observation of symptoms or first diagnosis and five years later when they start to affect the quality of life, you can retard the progression of those symptoms. You're talking about savings of hundreds of billions a year just in that one disease. And I genuinely believe that within five to 10 years, we're going to see a number of those kinds of tools rolling out um, that you know will make a profound difference to patients' lives. I mean, actually touching on that, we talked about value and sharing of value. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, how much are we seeing these sort of um, cost-saving sharing kind of models? Are they are they sort of coming through? Um, well, it, it's, it's very interesting you say that. In the healthcare space, of course, they love uh, risk sharing and saving sharing. And I, I think that is very much the, the model that we expect to see. Yeah. Um, you know, and, and it's it's certainly one that we're pursuing. Where um, if you are able to demonstrate not just the clinical utility and the adoptability, but the economic value mm-hmm. of deploying better tests into the um, into the cl- routine clinical practice, that you know you can already. There are economic models out, even you know, in different social or insurance led systems that can value. Um, the the improvements that you're making. I mean, uh, you know, one of my questions would be: with the NHS, can be a little bit siloed. So, you know, it's, if it's not coming out of their budget, then they don't. You know, it's it's saving costs on a hospital bed, but it might not be somebody else might be paying a bit more for a diagnostic or something. So, it doesn't necessarily square up th- that way. Or you know, I, I think it's fair to say the NHS is not leading this charge. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. Oh uh, yes, question. I think there's a button if you press by your microphone. Excellent. Great, thank you. Hi, um, so my name is Basma Jalani. I'm from UCL. Um, I guess the question I had is one of the things we um, come across quite frequently when we're looking at collaborations between university and the industry is um, really that kind of uh, ownership of data and really the flow of value back to the patient. Mm. So I'd just be really interested in your views in terms of whether you think think there is an opportunity to feed that value back to the patient and I mean like commercial value mm-hmm. and really how could that work if it can work so, I mean, oh, I, yeah I don't, I don't want to pick on anyone in particular I mean it, 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 those not the kind of deals you sort of mainly doing at AZ Adam or, or the you know the, the academic type ones or is it more a question for Steve uh, I mean I, I think it, yeah yes we, we, we've looked at that I mean I think there are different ways to Navigate again, and I think we could have a whole separate topic on 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 data and sort of expectations from the sort of consumer facing perspective about what they would like to see, and um, the you know the, the sort of trust and, and way in which Aiden and GSK handle handle patient data. Um, I mean, it's it's slightly maybe off topic, but I think again it goes to sort of Steve's point that I, I think there's just an expectation now that that we will handle that data. In, in the right way, in an ethical way, and that will be very transparent in terms of what we're doing with, with patient data. So irrespective of the pound or dollar value that's attributed to it, having that transparency so that as a, as a patient, as, as a 
the citizen, I can have that full access to that and know exactly how it's being managed, whether that's by GSKAZ or you know other partners. So we, so we have to, I think, whether we want to do it or not, we have to, otherwise we won't be, you know, it, and again, this goes to a wider societal point about the sort of trust in which we're dealing with our patients and when once that's broken, then, uh, you know, it's a long way back. It's, it's critical. And I, I suppose the, the, the part of your question, if I'm right, is saying, well, if you provide data to an AI company, for example, and you make a great product from it or you, ha- you, you have a great collaboration with I know Pfizer or whoever it is, and there's a product on the market. You're saying you sort of you want sort of a discount on those products, or or it free back to the the the. the, the, so, the I mean, we or you have some usage back for it for of actually what comes out at the end. So that's yeah. So we, I mean, well, sorry, I'm oh. saying we've been looking at it from an organisation perspective, but ultimately, who wants the data? It could be so I think yeah. I think one important thing to say is you shouldn't be doing exclusive deals around patient data. In my humble opinion, it, I, I don't think that there's that it's very easy to justify that from a from an ethical perspective. You, know, you should be seeking to bring as many innovative ways of analysing that data for the maximum benefit. So, I mean, from our perspective, we do a lot of these deals. Um, we've probably, as I said, probably done um, two dozen or so of, of these kind of deals internationally. So it's not exclusive. We're looking to analyze that data and find signal that, that others are not going to be able to do with the standard tools. Otherwise, we wouldn't have a business. Um, and then, you know, because, it, because of the nature of, of drug development or, or diagnostic development, it's very difficult at the outset to say what is going to come out of this and negotiate deal terms at the end. So we, we tend to favor a, a simpler deal structure, which is just a straight royalty on all commercial products that come out of it, agreed up front. And then, you know, it, it, it's in everybody's interest. Again, incentives are aligned to move forward as quickly as possible get those get those deals done but i have no problem um you know if if the data are creating valuable ip i've absolutely no no problem sharing that and you know we've worked with some fabulous charities in diseases like als uh, i give a big shout out to the motor neuron disease association and project mine you know having those data sets has been pivotal in generating new discoveries in those spaces and Let's be honest, those data have come from patients at the worst possible time in their life. It is a privilege to be gifted the right to use um, those kinds of data. And it absolutely should be rewarded, not just in terms of new therapy, but you know, if there's a financial reward coming to the charity or to the institution that's collected that, absolutely that should go back to them. Claire, I mean if just sorry, just a couple of I mean, just to say that obviously not all projects in AIML need to be involved with proprietary data. Mm-hmm. So there are reasons to do projects or collaborations that purely involve use of public data. Mm-hmm. And I guess the spirit of that is normally there will be some sort of companion publication and release the results. And maybe the other just observation is if if you are proprietary about the data that you want to put into a collaboration, the thing that we tend to think a lot about now is... Um, derivative data, mm-hmm. because obviously the data going into a project is not the data that's going to be the thing going into the, the computer. It's going to have to be pre-processed, 
pre-processed, sorry, or cleaned, you're going to convert what you've given into some sort of training data set. You might create synthetic data from it, embeddings, and they can all, you know, if you value the data going in at the beginning, then all of these things are valuable as well. And then potentially the model trained with that data. So, you know, uh, and obviously there are the, the issue that there is no intellectual property right for data per se, you know, unless it reaches the level of being copyright copyright type of uh, data, invariably not. And I guess the EU, uh, through the uh, the Data Act, they're proposing to say that or make clear that database rights will not exist for machine-generated data um, to help open up, you know, I guess it's called the Internet of Things Act as well, to open mm. up the access to the data coming off Internet of Thing devices. So, um, yeah, there's a lot to think about there. Um when it comes to it. So a lot of it is down to the contractual provisions, mm. you know, and that's when, you know, and that makes it harder for people, I guess, to let their data go out because once it's out, you've lost probably the only traditional thing you might rely on, which is confidentiality or trade yeah. secrets because nothing else exists in that, yeah. in, in what's now in the public domain. Mm. But dare to share and, and you know, yeah. I suppose you can't, ev- everybody's contributed some data, you can't have everybody having a royalty, otherwise that's not sustainable. So it has to yeah. be a, a balance. Like yeah. Alex, I see you have a question. Sorry, I was just going to add to that. I've heard a lot of discussion about patient-level rewards, and I think it's it's intriguing to look back at the history of where we've got to with here. And, for example, if we wanted to go to patient-level rewards, we'd have to unravel 60 years of clinical trials. I think it's fundamentally at odds with the Helsinki Declaration to talk about patient-level rewards. I'm not saying the patients aren't contributing something valuable, and I think the registries, the biorepositories, the biobanks are all very valuable, but I think the return will be back to an institution that coordinated or the charity or whatever. At a patient level, I find it a little almost bizarre to, to, to reconcile with the way we've run ethics and law since World War II. So I think that's probably true in the UK. I think it gets a little bit more difficult when you're in an insurance-led system true, in the US. True. And, you know, we've, we're starting to, I mean, you know, you can immediately value a change in behaviour um, based on contributing your data and then getting a personalised recommendation. Um, so I, I think there are, it, it is a little bit different in different types of jurisdiction, but I don't, I don't disagree with you in the UK. I mean, I think that's that's absolutely the correct principle. I mean, just to sort of add, I mean, obviously there is a huge trust agenda around pharmaceutical yeah. companies going back many years. So there are... Um, Schemes where pharmaceutical companies have come together to make uh, patient-level data that's not automatically put out there in terms of uh, clinicaltrial.gov. So schemes like uh, Vivly and uh, is it the Clinical Study Data Register, where bona fide research requests to access that data. Once the data is made known to be made available or that study, then requests go in and an independent panel evaluates whether that is a sufficiently bona fide research request right. for that data to be released. Yeah. But I guess then there's still some controls around how they access that. And that's another thing. You know, you can have all the contractual provisions you want around protecting data, but you might want to think about, well, what technical protection measures you want, sort of what euphemistically is called sandbox environments and yeah. things like that. Or trusted research environments if yeah. you're in, in the NHS. Yeah. yeah, that's coming back to your point, Adam.